Hello and welcome to The Shana Show. I'm your host, Shana Safi, a qualified nutritionist and holistic health coach. I'm on a mission to help you live a nourished life on every single level. When it comes to your health, your purpose, your growth and everything in between, this podcast is a tool to guide and inspire you towards becoming your happiest and healthiest self. So if you're hungry for growth, you are in the right place. Thank you for tuning in. This week's guest on the podcast is the wonderful Ali McLean, who is a qualified nutritionist who has an online clinic specializing in sports nutrition and women's health. So she is really passionate about supporting women, active women, as they embark on their health and fitness journey. And she's just a wealth of knowledge in this area. So I've brought her on to chat all things sports nutrition, even though there's probably many things we could talk about from gut health to plant-based eating to hormones to all of the things that you specialize in and have amazing knowledge and skills in. But thank you so much for being here. And I'm really looking forward to what comes from this conversation, Ellie. It's great to have you. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me back. You're so welcome. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know Ellie, she has been on my other podcast, Nutrition Grad Guide, which is a more career focused podcast. Um, So this will be more the nutrition side of things. But if you're interested in hearing about how she's built up her clinic and all of the cool things she's doing behind the scenes, head over to Nutrition Grad Guide to check that out. And speaking of podcasts, Ellie also has her own podcast called Talking Nutritionally. Um, And you can find that on all of the main podcast providers and we'll pop links to that on the show notes if you want to dive in more and learn more from the incredible Ali. Thanks. You're welcome. Cool. So let's get into it. Let's start a little bit with your um, journey to how you became the nutritionist that you are today and Mm. how you got interested in the sports nutrition and the women's health. Yeah. So sports nutrition was always front of mind for me. So I um, was that kid in like, I don't know, year 10, year 11, watching the the first AFL team at my high school and like literally thinking, I wonder what those guys ate today. Chris Judd went to my school and he was in the first team at the time. So I was, you know, <laughs> what did he eat today? I wonder what he had is going to help him jump higher in the center. I loved watching um, Iron Man, um, so you know, a fan of Trevor Hendy and Kai Hurst, and thinking, you know, is Nutrigrain really what's powering them through, <laughs> you know, their Iron Man competition? And then when I spoke spoke to my careers advisor at school, and she said there was this degree where I could study exercise science and nutrition in the one, um, I thought that sounded like me. So. Yeah. Um, I studied exercise science and nutrition under the banner of health sciences at Deakin uh, and, you know, lectured under likes of Louise Burke and always thought I wanted to work in sports nutrition. Um, However, like leaving university, I didn't really have any experience in like significant events. Um, I think I'd run a half marathon by that stage. I wasn't an overly skilled athlete, so like running was just like, something I could go and do. Uh, And I didn't have the confidence either. I didn't have the confidence to, you know, sit down and talk to professional athletes or even just weekend warriors or, you know, just the the day-to-day athletes who have lives and children and full-time jobs. I didn't have the confidence, the life experience or the training experience. So I went and worked in corporate health and I think it was over that time where I got more and more interested in running. Um, I ended up running four marathons, um, you know, in my I don't know late twenties, early thirties, 
and had been through a lot of my own, you know, health-related experiences from um, amenorrhea, being on and off the pill, um, parasites, IBS, you know, coming to a crescendo uh, and not, officially diagnosed but some level of burnout and and adrenal fatigue in there and that's when I thought oh I've done all the things I've experienced all the things I could probably help people now um because I've got the you know the 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 physiology and that understanding and now I have the personal experience to bring to the table as well uh and that's my journey I haven't run a marathon now in it must be about four years, three years. Um, I was, I had a hamstring injury, which I was just getting back from. And, um, you know, late last year, earlier this year, it was sort of like, do I want to fall pregnant or do I want to run another marathon? What's my, mm-hmm. what's my focus? And I, I decided due to my age, I really wanted to focus on falling pregnant. So that's where mm-hmm. I am at. And um, I was at the Melbourne Marathon on the weekend and really like just, you know, got the, got the warm and fuzzies like thinking okay I want to be back here so that'll yeah. be a postpartum goal <laughs> to <Yeah>. work towards <laughs> uh, and for the time being I get a lot of joy working with my clients on their um their sporting nutrition and event nutrition yeah amazing were you at the marathon cheering on some of your clients um had some clients there my partner was there doing the oh, half awesome. marathon yeah. uh it was just like this mishmash of friends clients family it's a fun day beautiful yeah that sounds amazing random side note question you mentioned you chose out of either falling pregnant or training for a marathon is it possible to run a marathon while pregnant or is that just dangerous oh well it's you know they say that if your body is used to something prior to falling pregnant then um you should be you should be pretty safe to keep doing that while pregnant, but listening to your body in the process. Yeah. Um, so you wouldn't start training when you got pregnant. Like if you're already a marathon runner and then you fall pregnant, then might be okay. <laughs> if you're already a marathon runner and you fall in pregnant, I would, depends on your body as well. Like from yeah. trimester one or maybe from week six, my speed um, was immediately impacted. Um, my heart rate was immediately impacted, so I couldn't go as hard and I, as I was used to. And that wasn't a mental thing; that was a that was a physical thing uh, yeah. because of just the surge of hormones through my body. So I don't know what it would be like for you know an elite marathon runner and whether they f- you know felt like they could keep running distances. But at the moment, like I feel great running seven k, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. that's wonderful. That's and amazing. I'll, you know, do that until I feel comfortable yeah but in terms of the decision making process that I went through um I was coming back from injury so yeah uh, I would have been building up to a marathon yeah and I was just really conscious that I didn't like you know marathon running is stressful it's stressful for the body my partner was a professional runner in his 20s and he still says to this day I will never run a marathon because it is it is stress on the body and then you know of course you got 50k's and 100k's and I love them but I'm just highlighting that they are stressful for the body and yeah when I was trying to make sure that I was ovulating you know uh, consistently and predictably every month I didn't want to have extra stress um, yeah. for my body and of course you can pay attention to intensity and um training nutrition and recovery, um, but fundamentally uh, 
I didn't want to be really building my case and yeah. um, trying to conceive. I'm sure people could do yeah. it, but that was the choice that I made. Yeah, beautiful. It sounds like some great reasoning behind that and love that you're like always listening to your body. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, yeah super, super important. Brilliant. So let's chat a bit about general sports nutrition. So for people who are quite active and doing their daily workouts or regular workouts a few times a week, what should they be incorporating to support that? Hmm. Uh, well, I think for the person that is, you know, working out, doing it because I presume they want to feel good about themselves, um, you know, often there is a body compositional change goal, whether that be a reduction in body fat and or a, an increase in muscle development. I mean, that's what I see in my clinic. Would you say that's a common scenario that you might see? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. cool. Yeah. Um, so it's really important to make sure, particularly in women, that fundamentally the exercise that they're doing is not creating or adding to any stress load on their body yeah you know if we talk about just let's say you know women between the ages of 25 and 50 you know usually they have a job uh often there's children thrown into the mix so there's a household that has to be run so there's lots happening and it's very likely that there is stress you know dr Mm -hmm. libby weaver coined this term rushing women's syndrome and i see it all the time in clinic, not necessarily this conscious psychological stress, but just this unconscious constantly feeling under pressure. Like I have to be here by that time. I have to get the kids there by that time. Dinner's got to be ready by this time. And then I've got to get up and train in the morning. So fundamentally when it comes to training in women, this category one of the biggest things we don't want is for the training to be an added form of stress because those goals of wanting to lose body fat and or build muscle mass they just won't happen yeah um because you know lack of sleep increased cortisol they're really competing with the body's ability to burn fat effectively and build muscle effectively Mm. so fundamentally with sports nutrition it's about how do we time or eating and how do we choose what we're eating according to our training from my perspective to make sure that we're not adding any load or creating any extra stress for the body and then on top of that that we're helping the recovery so we're not only adding or trying to take away stress we're trying to add value and recovery to maximize that time spent training beautiful yeah a lot of people think that training nutrition is about what you eat prior to the training session and in some scenarios it absolutely is but really training nutrition is about what you eat after the session yeah for most people yeah um we can go into what i would call more strategic um, sports nutrition if you want to but i think for all athletes whether they're people who are you know, training most days of the week or working towards an event or um, professional yep. training nutrition, like goes without saying, like you have to, you have to nail your training nutrition before you can get to, um, you know, strategic performance and, and fueling. Yeah. Post-training is a really important window. Yeah. Um, 
there's a lot of research on the requirements for post-training, but yet there's still a lot of controversy on the requirements for post-training. So controversy around is there really this like window of opportunity in Mm -hmm. the 60 to 120 minutes post-exercise? I always stick to maximising that window of opportunity in the 60 to 120 minutes, but ideally in a female who is between the ages of like 25 and 50 and possibly still with a menstrual cycle, mm-hmm. unless there's other factors like being pregnant or being on a hormonal contraceptive or um, having been through menopause already, um, any woman who is still cycling, I would want them to be eating in the 60 minutes post-exercise. Yeah. And I guess the the requirement for that becomes more and more so when the exercise gets more and more intense and when the, when the sessions get longer, okay? Mm-hmm. So a 30-minute walk or a 45-minute walk, it's not so pertinent that, you know, food is being consumed in the 60 minutes after that session, but certainly uh, after dog running, especially if it's going beyond 60 minutes, any sort of strength-based exercise or high-intensity interval training, swimming, uh, team sports where there is intervals, eating in that 60 minutes is really crucial. And it's three key things. One is attenuating cortisol, especially if that session was done in the morning when cortisol is naturally on the rise and when the session may have been done fasted. Mm -hmm. The second is supporting muscle glycogen replenishment. So glycogen is the carbohydrate that's stored in our muscle uh, and it's going to be a large contributor to energy in a strength-based exercise. Yeah. Um, so we we need to be eating in the 60 minutes after a session to replenish that muscle glycogen. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> if we don't replenish that muscle replenish that muscle glycogen, that's when there might be the hangries later in the later in the day or the needing to nap later in the day mm-hmm. or heavy legs and not being able to get up and train the next day. Yeah. Um, so for all those people who try fasting, or continuing to fast after a morning workout because mm. they're, they're sort of cottoning on to this, this notion of intermittent fasting, which don't get me wrong, there's definitely a time and a place for intermittent fasting, but continuing that fast after a morning training session mm. is going to be counterproductive to cortisol levels, muscle glycogen replenishment, and their poten- therefore potentially appetite later in the day. Yeah. And the third thing with refueling post-exercise is about supporting muscle protein synthesis as well. So mm-hmm. supporting um, that muscle growth and development after a training session, which, you know, most of us want to be able to grow muscle after we've worked it and trained yeah. it. Yeah. So get stronger. They're, they're one of the, like, I guess they're the, the key things we're trying to achieve through eating in the 60 minutes after training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just... I guess the biggest the biggest law of day to day training nutrition is that that post training recovery. Yeah. 
now you might be thinking, what do we have in that post-training recovery meal? What What's required? What's important? Because it's one thing to say, eat in the 60 minutes after exercise, but then it's like, okay, well, what do I eat? Like, obviously it's not fries and, um, <laughs> you know, we're told that Nutrigrain's good yeah. uh, and a lot of healthy people drink smoothies. So, like, what should it be? Mm-hmm. Um The research tells us that it's the combination of carbohydrate and protein that is really required in that post-training window. So um, carbohydrate helping to stimulate insulin, which stimulates the muscle glycogen um, replenishment. It also stimulates muscle protein synthesis. Uh, and it also helps to attenuate the cortisol and protein, supporting that muscle protein synthesis, um, also supporting cortisol. So both of those really, really important. Yeah. The amount that's had will vary person to person. It also certainly vary male to female um, because of the amount of muscle that's, that's there. Um, it'll vary on the type of training session that's being done, mm-hmm. um, you know, so like a super strong, um, you know, strength-based workout versus a hit versus a, a jog. For most women, I talk about like a ratio of three to one, which might there be even too much detail, um, but generally thinking I'm looking for 50 to 60 grams of carbohydrate and I'm looking for 20 20-ish grams of protein and they are the foundation of the the post-training meal beautiful yeah and we can layer with that you know we can layer in some extra fiber and antioxidants through veggies or low sugar fruits and we can layer in healthy fats for satiety value um so if we're looking at a post-training meal we're sort of trying to tick these boxes of carbohydrate I always recommend in the whole food form as best possible. Um, So that 60 grams of carbs might be coming from a big banana and a medjool date, for example. Um, Or it could be coming from a couple of slices of a good quality sourdough or I usually recommend the gluten-free bread where possible. Yeah. what are some other good forms of carbohydrates that are often coming through? It could be apples, pears. Um, look, it could be sweet potato or potato, mm-hmm. um, you know, three quarters to a, to a cup of either of those um, in your omelette, for example. So that's our carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. Our 20 grams of protein might be coming from three eggs, three, not two. A lot of people get that <laughs> wrong. But if we want a full serving of protein from eggs, it's usually three pretty decent size eggs. Yeah. You could mix and match. So it could be two eggs and 50 grams of smoked salmon. It could be protein powder. Mm-hmm. So it could be a really good quality pea and rice protein powder. Uh, that's the, the usual protein powder I'd recommend for anybody, whether they're plant-based or not. Whey protein powder also has some pretty good evidence behind it. I just don't use it as much in in clinic, Mm -hmm. um, but it's certainly an option. A lot of people are afraid of protein powders. Like they think of them as being like a a food reserved for bodybuilders or a product reserved for bodybuilders, but it's absolutely not the case. Like protein powders have come a long way these days. Often they're clean. They're relatively low in ingredients. They're sweet and naturally 
And they really just help to add variety or options to that post-training meal, that Mm -hmm. that recovery meal. Absolutely. And I think the ones that are marketed towards the bodybuilders that are in those like big black tubs and things, they're often the ones that aren't the simple ingredients. They have a whole ton of additives and things. So yeah, it's more the ones that are marketed as more like the whole food protein supplements and yeah, just turning it around and looking at those ingredients. But like you said, there are some really great options out there. There are. I usually say, um, look at the ingredient list. Like if there's more than five on there, then you do run the risk that maybe you will react to it because there might be some ingredients you've not used before. And this is especially for those with more sensitive um, um, digestive systems, maybe history of IBS where they don't need sort of um, unaccounted for maybe prebiotics in that protein powder or probiotics in the protein powder or added liver support like we just want the protein powder for what it is, which is the provider yeah. of like amino acids in the post-exercise window. Yeah. One of the reasons I suggest a protein and rice powder or a whey um, is because of the inclusion of adequate amounts of leucine in there. Now, now mm-hmm. leucine is one of the essential, um, sorry, branch chain amino acids. Yeah. And about... 1.5 to 3 grams of leucine in that post-exercise um, recovery meal is is also advantageous. Yeah. Um, and you won't get that from maybe just a pea protein or a, just a faba bean or just a hemp protein if you're looking at the, the plant-based protein options. Beautiful. That's great to know. Yeah. So that's our carbon protein. And then, yeah, we can, we can layer on that with, um, you know, berries or veggies and healthy fats like avocados and, and coconut creams or extra virgin olive oil. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we can just use all of those ingredients to create the sorts of sort of meal that we feel like. Beautiful. Um, yeah. Whether it be a good smoothie or an omelette or a frittata or um, some people do just like, you know, a brekkie salad with some hard-boiled eggs and spinach and chopped veggies and olive oil yeah. uh, and, you know, the inclusion of some sweet potato in there for that post-training carbohydrate source. Yeah. So there are a few options. I can definitely paint more if you want. <laughs> no, that's amazing. And would that be similar regardless of the type of exercise someone's doing so if it's a cardio or a strength session or like different time lengths as well would it kind of come back to that ultimately or does it vary a little bit depending on the type of training that you are doing um that'd be the fundamental so um coming back to that foundation of carbohydrate and protein for sure if it was a really low intensity aerobic exercise like and uh, a steady state walk, for example, mm-hmm. uh, then I'd say, okay, well, maybe you could bring it down to like 40 grams of carbs, which in a real life scenario would just mean a smaller serving of carbohydrate. Yep. Um, but for anything slightly more intense, like a half an hour run or a half an hour circuit session or more time than that, um, that would be your starting point. Beautiful. Yeah. And that's good. It could certainly build it up a little bit from there depending on the size of the person and the length of the session, for sure. 
Yeah, super helpful. Amazing. And then in terms of pre-workout, so we know now that post-workout meal is the most important thing to focus on and now we know what to do. But in terms of before the workout, what do you recommend before that? Like some people prefer working out fasted, some people prefer having something in their stomach. What's your general advice around that? Obviously keeping in mind listening to our bodies. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely listening to the body. So look, a lot of people train in the morning. I would say that tends to be the most common time that people train um, which means in the morning there's going to be a greater chance that you have that choice between training fasted and not training fasted Um, faster training would would really be anything that's done after 10 hours minimum of not eating so the difference being if someone's training on their lunch break or training after work for example they're technically not fasted even if they haven't eaten since the previous meal like breakfast and they're going out for a lunch workout or lunch and they're going out for an after work workout they're technically not fasted they may not have eaten eaten for four hours but they're still not fasted so um there's really a lot more flexibility to go and do that training without a specific pre-training snack that's not to say that some people wouldn't benefit from having a pre-training snack um but there's, it's just a different a different sort of, I guess, kettle of fish to the morning workout where we're literally deciding are we going in fasted or are we going to eat something prior to the session? Yeah. Now, there's variability here. Mm-hmm. So when the session is low intensity and easy, the requirement for a pre-workout snack or even if it becomes a supplement um, is much less. So taking the dogs out for a morning walk, for example, wouldn't require a pre-training snack to help you get through it. Unless you were first trimester pregnant, I can tell you the first trimester of pregnancy, those blood sugars are all over the place. And sometimes you need a snack before a walk. Um, But (laughs) for the vast majority, you should be able to go out for a walk in the morning fasted without feeling like you were going to um, faint or become nauseous in the process. Mm -hmm. Then when we start to increase the intensity of the exercise, whether it be a run or going and lifting weights or doing a circuit um, circuit training session, um, certainly for like that category of women 25 um, to 50 or even slightly younger to 50, especially if they're menstruating, I would say you want to start bringing something in prior to the training session. Yeah. And What you have might be dependent on your goals. Mm -hmm. But I typically recommend a small serving of carbohydrates. So it's not much, like literally 10 to 30 grams of carbs, which Mm -hmm. for those people who aren't, you know, calorie counters um, or, you know, been to university to understand where we find those grams of carbohydrates, that's like one medjool date or it's a half a medium-sized banana, um, half a bit of toast with maybe a tiny bit of honey on there so it's it's small it's not much um it's just enough to have uh like some some free and available energy there for the body to to start using as you exercise um sometimes for women who are cycling so they do have menstrual cycle we might change it up and look at specific pre-ovulation post-ovulation um, pre-training 
um, nutrition. That might be getting a little bit nuanced, but they're definitely things that we can tweak and play around with. Yeah. Um, but I guess in general there is a place for pre-training nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, lower intensity exercise, it's not so important to be there as the exercise gets more more intense, there becomes more and more reason to introduce something pre-exercise uh, and then it just depends on how that person feels as to how much they might have, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could definitely get away with some sessions a week where you aren't eating anything, even if it is somewhat high intensity. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't check. I wouldn't choose like your number one sessions or your peak sessions for the week to try that. I'd try something fairly more like more moderate. Yeah. Um, to do to do fasted, and I'd also say pay real close attention to your menstrual cycle or what are your goals at that time with regards to your menstrual cycle. Like if you're coming off the pill and you haven't had a a real bleed in a couple of years and you're two years, two months off the pill and you still haven't had a bleed, then I'd be feeding myself before I go out and do any training. Yes. Um, to, you know, to show the body that there is every reason to feel safe to procreate and therefore let's ovulate. Yeah. Um, if you're trying to conceive, I would be eating before most exercise so that there is you know, every reason for the body to feel, feel safe around procreating and ovulate. Yeah. Um, so I hope, hope that helps around pre-training nutrition. Yeah, it definitely does. It's very helpful and great to know even just the distinction between the fasted is the 10 hours with no food um, as opposed to like if you're working out after work and you've had lunch, that wouldn't be counted as fasted, even though it's been like a few hours since you've eaten. So even like mm. people being aware of that differentiation, I think is super helpful. And yeah, um, some really great tips about when to eat um, and when it's okay to be fasted. Love the distinction between the low impact and the more high impact and yeah, really good stuff. Yeah. That's helpful. Um, yeah. Men are also slightly different as well. They are like a yeah. bit more resilient to faster training. So, yeah. you know, where I say women maybe do one or two faster sessions a week, yeah. um, men would get away with more. There's, yeah. le- there's less research in women, but um, I tend to go by by feel and the, the goals mm-hmm. that we're treat, we're achieving. Yeah. And what I said, said before around post-training nutrition, like, or, mm-hmm sports nutrition in general like removing forms of stress yeah um for some women like going and training fasted even though there's all this research on intermittent fasting in men for some women going and training fasted is more of a stress for the body mm-hmm. and it's going to be counterproductive and create more cortisol um more cravings and overeating like later in the day so mm-hmm. although they may hear that intermittent fasting is so good for like body fat loss, for example, mm-hmm. in that person who potentially already has a lot of stress or is like in that, you know, that cycle of rushing women's syndrome, yeah. going and doing an every workout faster during the week, that just is likely to be another form of stress. Yeah, makes so much sense. Awesome. I have two other questions based on what we just spoke about. One is still related to pre-workout. The other one is going to be coming back to working out around your menstrual cycle. 
Um, but let's stick with the pre-workout one first. So pre-workout mm. supplements, what, how do you feel about them? Like we're both very real food, whole food nutritionists. So I feel like we're going to be pretty aligned on your answer here. Um, but what are your thoughts on pre-workout supplements? If someone is taking those or wants to take those, like when's the time and place, if there is a time and place. <laughs> yeah. And look, pre-workout supplements because of, uh, I guess my focus on on um, real food, they're not my go-to. Certainly if somebody comes into clinic um, and they've already given themselves or they've already had themselves on like a multi-ingredient pre-workout supplement yeah. um, and it seems to be working for them and they feel really great in their training, then I might allow them to keep using it. So like these, these multi-ingredient pre-workouts, um, would contain usually a combination of amino acids, um, so things like um, beta alanine, uh, and they'll also contain caffeine and maybe some like other nutrients in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually they're there to um, improve exercise performance, reduce time to fatigue, um, and you know ultimately try and help someone get more out of that training session. Yeah, I'd say there is some positive research around the use of um, pre-workouts. We we can call them for short, but for the day-to-day person, like get half a banana in, and yeah. you'll you'll have a great training session. Yeah, um, or if you need to have half a banana in your coffee before yeah. you go and work out, or if you're really looking to to build serious muscle, uh, then have some branch chain amino acids um, with your coffee or mixed in and your banana. Uh, and you could, you know, you could have that instead. Probably yeah. one of my biggest yeah. concerns for caffeinated um, pre-workouts for a lot of women is just that they're high in caffeine, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> 190 milligrams, yeah. uh, which is, it's like having a double shot yeah. um, espresso. Yeah, it's a lot. Uh, and if we put that into the context of somebody who's perhaps already stressed, yeah. uh, that's just another another cortisol producing ingredient, which uh, which may not need to be there. Yeah. So for the average person who's wanting to go and fit in a good workout before they start work or get on with the rest of their day, um, I don't think prepackaged. Um, multi-ingredient pre-workouts are necessary. Yeah. I do sometimes use them, but they wouldn't be my first port of call in clinic. Yeah, beautiful. So stick to the banana and the coffee if you want something pre-workout yeah. <laughs> in most Get cases. Some benefits from that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're now, um, I, I saw recently in a paper, they're now the second most sold supplement, like over-the-counter supplement behind wow. a multivitamin. That's huge. And the, yeah. so many of them are full of additives. So that kind of scares me, actually. That really scares me, not just kind of. Yeah, <laughs> like there's precisely. some good ones out there, but there's a lot that's just trash, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. And wow. um, not nece- like just not necessary. Yeah. Because you, know, you, you can fill a lot of these gaps with like food, like I said, or more specific like branch chain amino acid supplements if yeah. necessary. 
Yeah, beautiful. That's yeah, really good to know your opinion on that. Thank you for sharing that insight. Um, and so then the other question was around training around our cycle. So you already mentioned this a little bit. Um, what are some of your brief tips? Because obviously this could be a whole topic on its own, but do you have any tips when it comes to the intensity of your workout and where you are in your cycle for the month? Mm. So I was speaking with a professor from um, one of the universities in California last week, Dr. Andy Galpin. He's incredible, like such a wealth of knowledge and like up there with some of the most knowledgeable exercise physiologists in the world. He did say that he has some question, like, you know, he's not entirely sold on this notion that women should train differently according to where they are in their cycle. Yeah. However, I'm going to look at my feedback and the feedback of my clients and understanding of the physiological differences that are there within the body um, under the influence of more progesterone, for example, or estrogen or testosterone. And, yeah, I do think it is really empowering for women to know that they may exercise differently depending on where they are in their cycle. I don't think it should necessarily be this blanket rule that, I'm ovulating tomorrow, so I'm not going to exercise. It's not as it's not as clear cut or as simple as that. Mm-hmm. It's acknowledging that over the course of let's say a month, for ease mm-hmm. sake, or over the course of a four week period, mm-hmm. and a woman, a female who is cycling, mm-hmm. so you know starts a period on day one, goes through to day twenty eight. A female who is experiencing those menstrual menstrual cycles will have very different hormonal patterns over the course of those four weeks. We're talking like six different hormonal patterns over the course of those four weeks. And these hormones impact our physiology. And so, for example, progesterone, which is more dominant or is the dominant hormone post-ovulation pre-period, that increases our heart rate. It increases our resting metabolic rate. Um, it reduces our insulin sensitivity. So when we think about how that might affect how we exercise, um, it could increase our time to, um, to exhaustion, increase our perceived rate of effort, increase our because it increases our heart rate. No. Um, so for a lot of women, they just find that they can't, they can't get that peak performance in the two weeks post-ovulation pre-period. Mm -hmm. it's not to say they shouldn't necessarily try but it's just to highlight that if they aren't doing pbs on the track or in the gym or just bouncing out of their workout maybe there is an influence of their their hormonal changes their hormonal fluctuations and they shouldn't be so hard on themselves if they couldn't get a pb on that day for example yeah um I have a lot of um, clients who also work with coaches, you know, running coaches or triathlon coaches, and usually they plan their training schedule in four-week blocks. Yeah. And especially with like um, marathon training or triathlon where the numbers of hours exercising can be quite great, Mm -hmm. you know, seven to 14 hours a week of training. Um. And what often happens in that four-week block is the coach will um, build in a week of lower training load. So I often say to my clients, if you can communicate with your coach that 
you know, that week in the training block that coincides with the last week of your menstrual cycle, that might be a great training block to reduce the load because mm-hmm. um, it's just going to, uh, I guess, allow you to work with your hormones and your physiology a little yeah. bit better. Yeah. Um, so, again, it's not to psych women out into thinking, oh, well, post-ovulation and pre-period, I can't exercise. That is absolutely not the message. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, understanding that our hormones change our physiology. It might change how we feel when we exercise. Mm-hmm. So have different expectations and sometimes, yeah, change things up, like sub out a, a hit class for a yoga class, yeah. um, for example. Yeah. yeah. And listening to your body as well, like um, yeah. technically um, our hormones should not be in the way, you know, like once our period arrives, um, that's actually when we have low levels of progesterone, low levels of estrogen when our period arrives. And um, technically we should be good and ready to go and train. Um, But some women anecdotally feel um, like they want to be a little bit more, I don't know, recluse on those first few days of their period. Hopefully not due to excess heaviness or pain. That would be another problem that we need to resolve and get to the bottom of. Yeah. Uh, but some women just feel maybe a little bit more tired in those few days of their cycle. And that's a really individual thing. And yeah, again, listen to your body. Yeah. It keeps coming back to that, doesn't it? Such an important piece, listening to our body and learning to listen yeah. to it. Like so many of us can be disconnected from it. Um, but the more that we start to tune in and be like, actually, what do I need today? What are my energy levels like? What workout would like be best for me today? And that's going to change on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's so many reasons as to why we become disconnected from our bodies. You know, yeah. I think for women who've had children and they're looking after, you know, three children, it's, you know, they feel like their purpose is there for their children, which is not yeah untrue but you also have to take care of yourself and and listen to your own requirements um for those people who perhaps are really serious about their training um being told to listen to your body is a foreign like a foreign concept yeah you know for example a marathon runner a triathlete like if they truly listen to their body in the last like 10 K of a marathon, they might not get to the end of the marathon. So true. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had an osteopath a couple of years ago who was like, okay, I'm happy for you to start running again post-injury, yeah. but I want you to stop when it gets to about a five out of 10 in terms of um, pain um, for your hamstring. Yeah. I was like, I don't know what a five out of 10 feels like. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I am just a runner. I go out and run and I try and do the session and finish it. I'm not that good at listening to my body. And, you know, that was me three years ago. Mm -hmm. And so just highlighting that even some of the most connected and, you know, those of us with the best intentions still have to learn how to listen to our body. Yeah, it's a constant work in progress. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. And let's talk briefly about training nutrition. I know this is very um, personalized and very specific and highly recommend that people book in with you if they are actually training for a marathon or triathlon or any of those things. But what is some of your general advice around if someone is about to embark on a big event and training towards that and in terms of their nutrition? Mm. Um, So when it comes to like, yeah, looking at more what I would call strategic sports fueling, um, there are three 
three key factors. Mm-hmm. One is nutrition. So that is usually an exogenous carbohydrate um, that we're looking at bringing in yeah. to the session. Two is electrolytes. Um, so a source of primarily sodium coming into the system and three is hydration. Yeah. Um, so what water is coming in now for anything that is, I say around about three or four hours or less so between like a one hour and a three or four hours, yeah. let's say training scenario, mm-hmm. it's important to start bringing in nutrition and hydration. Yeah. And this is where it gets complex because, yeah, people, maybe they're training for a marathon for the first time, they've never fueled in a workout before, they've not got used to what it feels like to hydrate in a workout before. Mm -hmm. And so these are definitely things to play around with in nutrition because we always say nothing new on race day. So you don't want race day, like your first Melbourne marathon, to be the first time that you've tried sipping on water while you're running or you've tried having some sort of sports fuel while you're running. So for two reasons, it's important to bring these factors into your training. One is so you can get used to the feeling of having water in your system or having some nutrition in your system whilst you're training. And then two is to help you get more out of that extended training session. Yeah. I tend to try and use real ingredients in a training scenario Mm -hmm. where you know, where it's practical and and feasible, which it often is in a training scenario because you're still at home, you sort of got those, um, you know, those those creature comforts around you. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about nutrition, it's primarily carbohydrate, as I said, exogenous carbohydrate. And this is where we want easy to access, easy to digest carbohydrates. So often they're coming in a liquid or gel form. Yeah. I absolutely swear by a friend's... um, uh, homemade gel recipe, which is a combination of lemon juice, rice malt syrup, blended raspberries, a little bit of MCT oil or coconut oil, um, blend it in a blender, strain it and pop it into a little gel flask and run with that. Awesome. And that's a great one to have. Homemade, yeah. clean ingredients, cheap as, and really great for training sessions, especially if you're going to be fueling over multiple training sessions in a week. Mm-hmm. So that's got your nutrition sorted and to some degree there's some electrolyte support in there because of the lemon juice and you can also add a pinch of salt. If you don't want to make your own um, sports gel, then you can buy them. Um, Mm. So there's a couple of brands I usually recommend. One is called You Can and they have gels, selections. Um, Coda is another really popular one. And goo is another really popular one. I tend to stick with you can as best possible, mm-hmm. but it's only available online. So f- for some people, it's not overly accessible. They've got to plan in advance for it, which is not always a problem, but you've just got to plan, plan in advance for it. Yeah. Um, with regards to, and there is, there is like, I guess some rhyme and rhythm around how you'd have that sports gel, but I, just, I don't know if you want to go into that detail. Um, And then with regards to hydration, this is going to be variable. If someone's really working towards an event, I would say do some sweat tests and get to know how much you sweat and therefore how much you need to rehydrate because Mm -hmm. the difference in sweat between person A and person B is going to be real, Mm -hmm. you know, anywhere between 200 to 600 mil of water loss in an hour 
um, from person A to person B is, is very possible and you want to be hydrating according to your body's needs, not according to somebody else's needs. Yeah. So I think starting point, most people need to get comfortable with drinking 450 mil of water in like an hour of running, for example, in the sessions that are longer than an hour. Mm -hmm. But you would want to do some simple sweat testing to figure out how much you lose in an hour and therefore, you know, how much more you need than that 450 mil of water. And you can just Google, I can give you some links to like at-home sweat test. You don't need to go to a lab or pay someone just need to figure out how much water are you losing in a 60-minute run or a 60-minute cycle um, or whatever event you're working towards. You'll try and do a, you know, do a test that is reflective of your event scenario. Yeah, cool. That's really interesting. Yeah, super helpful. Good. But, yeah, that's just, I would say, quick insights on um, nutrition and hydration for our training sessions between like one to three or one to four hours. Yeah. Beautiful. And in terms of the electrolytes, when would you start to add them in or would they be like an after session where you're replenishing those? You can definitely replenish them after session, but in sessions where we're getting to more than three or four hours, depending on what the climate is like, uh, that's where you'd be bringing in electrolytes. Beautiful. And do you have any recommendations around electrolytes and replenishing them? So the number one electrolyte we're looking for is sodium Mm -hmm. and you go as simple as using old table salt (laughs) uh, and, and popping that into your drink, your water, or if you've made like a, um, a sports drink, you could pop the salt into that. Um, Some people will buy electrolyte solutions um, like a, um, a Coda. I love Noons, which is a sugar free electrolyte tab. Um, or there's Tailwind, which is quite popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and they will have all your electrolytes in there, not just sodium. I would encourage that you're doing a level of sweat testing before you bring in electrolytes again so you can be really across. Um, number one, how much you sweat, because then it's going to at least give you a more indicative of how much in, in the way of electrolytes you're losing in a given hour of, you know, a run or a cycle. Yeah, um, and at the very least, play around. If you know that you're going to be doing a three plus hour event in a hot situation, yeah, make sure you've played around with your electrolytes in training before you go to the event scenario. Because you can use things like salt tabs, which are literally tablets of salt. But um, I really want athletes to play with that prior to using it in an event scenario. Yeah. Beautiful. So much helpful info. Amazing. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on today that you feel like is really important to mention around sports nutrition before we do wrap up? I just think highlighting that anybody who's exercising regularly is an athlete and therefore they need to be paying attention to how they're recovering from their training, how they're bringing food into that recovery process um, when, you know, when their training so is it the morning where they might be fasted or not fasted. And I guess just acknowledging like, oh, I'm an athlete. Okay. That means I have to treat my body like I'm an athlete and nutrition plays a really big part in that. I think yeah. sports often people would just sort of think, 
like just go to the gym five times a week. So like sports nutrition is not really relevant for me, but it absolutely is. Uh, it will help you to get more from your training and mm-hmm. therefore closer to the adaptations that you want to make, um, you know, building muscle, gaining strength. And um, for a lot of people, a result of that, they want to see body fat loss happening. But your nutrition is going to help you maximize that time that you are spending exercising. Yeah. So it's a really important part of exercise. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree with that. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this incredible knowledge with us today. Where can the listeners find you and learn more about you and continue to absorb all of the brilliant information that you put out? Well, thank you. Um, There's a couple of places. So I'm active on Instagram. Uh, My handle is at nutritionally. So that's basically just nutrition with E-L-L-Y on the end. I share a lot there. I also have a website, which is nutritionally.com. I have a blog there with articles, recipes, and my podcast. So they're the two main points where people can access me. Beautiful. And I'll pop those in anything that I share as well so people can find you nice and easy. But, yeah, just want to say a massive thank you for being here today and for sharing all of this information. And all of us are going to be thanking you after our next session at the gym or run or walk or whatever it may be. We know now how to better fuel ourselves and support our body in, yeah, moving. Thank <laughs> you. important stuff. Um, I will actually say one more thing, which is yeah, standard please. of me. Yeah. Um, I've just released it, so it's it's still not in my normal trail of thought, but I have just released a um, smoothie guide for active women, which is available on my website. So it's really about helping women to nail that first meal of the day, which is often their post-training meal so that they can really feel the benefits of that training and, um, you know, go into the rest of their day in a really good state. Um, So that that ebook might be really helpful for people who've listened to this and thought, okay, I need to start making some changes. Yeah, super helpful. And if anyone is training for a particular event or wants more personalized advice, highly recommend booking in a consult as well as grabbing that delicious sounding smoothie ebook. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so much, Ellie. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I'd absolutely love for you to leave me a review and let me know what you think. I'm always open to feedback and if you have any dream guests or topic requests, please feel free to send me a direct message or an email. If you know anyone else that this episode could benefit, I'd be so grateful if you could share it with them. Together, we can help even more people live a nourished life. Your support means so much to me and I appreciate you being here.